This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's look at how we address certain things. And we're going to swing to a different side of long-term care in a way. We're going to be able to have a conversation right now about long-term care and about how things have been handled. But this is going to present an idea. And ideas are great. It's one thing to identify the problem. Then you need an idea as to how to fix it. And if Dr. Marilee Fullerton was presenting ideas right now, she'd probably be getting a lot better feedback than just here's how much money we have spent. What are the ideas? And I hope that's what she's doing as she speaks at the moment. But we're lucky enough to have with us right now the president and CEO of Healthcare Excellence Canada, Jennifer Zelmer. Jennifer, thank you for joining us on, uh, well, a jam-packed, busy day. It is indeed. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about long-term care, and let's look at something that you have been very focused on, and that is supporting essential care partners. Let's first off just even define what an essential care partner would be. You bet. So an essential care partner, and you can use different terms, but for this purposes, we'll just call them that. People identified by a resident or a patient, if you're talking in the hospital context, who provide physical, psychological, emotional support that they deem important. So really not a general visitor, but actually becomes a family, a friend, a loved one who becomes a member of the care team. So that's that it becomes a, a role, I suppose. I mean, we can identify them as being a connection to somebody, but what kind of role does that essential care partner have? Yeah, there can be a huge range. So it can be help with decision-making, with care coordination, even things like meals and hygiene. So lots of different ways that um, essential care partners can play that role. And obviously, it has to be tailored to the individual's concerned. But what we're finding is that that's a really important role for so many people, particularly for people who may not speak the same language as their caregivers, um, who may have cognitive challenges, or for other reasons, really benefit from that support. Let's look back in time a little bit, because one of the things that is being addressed today is how some people in long-term care experienced a decline when it sounds like essential care partners, people who would be able to fill that role, they kind of got disconnected from them. So if we look at the situation that you've seen play out over the last year, what do you look at as having happened almost off the bat? Yeah, so pre-pandemic, a lot of organizations had fairly open um, visitation policies. Um, And understandably, you know, a year ago-ish, a bit more than a year ago now, lots of those doors slammed shut. So there were blanket visitor restrictions that were put in place. And in many cases, essential care partners weren't allowed to enter facilities. In a few cases, there were sometimes other means, whether it was by video or phone to stay in touch, but a fundamental change from people who the day before maybe had been helping uh, people to eat or had been helping people to uh, walk down hallways and maintain that kind of casual, kind of functionality had had been just there as, as supporting people in, in their care needs. And, that and then all of a sudden that changed. It did. And I mean, understandably, at the beginning, we knew very little about COVID-19, so decisions had to be made fast. 
think the opportunity now that we know more, we know more about how to support essential care partners to safely reintegrate in care settings. And we also know more about the risks of them not being actively engaged. We are talking with Jennifer Zelmer, President and CEO of Healthcare Excellence Canada. And we are going to be talking in a moment about essential together. So if we look at maybe some of the concerns that, that became exacerbated by the pandemic, would it start with the inability for essential care partners to have the same kind of involvement that they did? I mean, so many things happened at the beginning of the pandemic, but one of the things that happened was absolutely this fundamental change in terms of essential care partners' involvement. And so some of the research shows that when essential care partners aren't involved, anxiety tends to be higher, medication adherence tends to be lower, there tends to be more cognitive decline in older adults, falls are more common, there's challenges with care transitions and so on. So there's a there's a set of risks, right? There's infection risks, absolutely. We need to understand and manage those. But there's also other risks that we need to be aware of and bring into the picture. And what kinds of risks would those be? What are we talking about? So we're talking about things like um, cognitive decline. So a relative of mine, for instance, is in long-term care. Her husband used to come in every day and they'd have, you know, conversations and he would help her to walk up and down. And when he wasn't able to come in, you know, the care staff are super busy. Things that my relative used to do together, they were now having to do. And you did see cognitive decline. And, and that's not a unique circumstance. We've certainly heard that broadly. You also see challenges with anxiety, with loneliness, and with things like medication adherence as well. We are talking right now about, and we will be talking about something called Essential Together in seconds. We are talking right now with Jennifer Zelmer, President and CEO of Healthcare Excellence Canada. So obviously you've seen what has played out. Now let's look at Essential Together. What is Essential Together? So Essential Together started with a recognition of a problem and bringing people together virtually, obviously, who had ideas of solving that problem. So we had residents, we had essential care partners, we had clinicians, public health folks, ethicists, researchers, policymakers, and we said, okay, so now what? And fundamentally, Essential Together is a program to help healthcare organizations safely reintegrate essential care partners as true members of their care teams during the pandemic, but also beyond it as well. So it's a series of co-created policy guidance and tools, opportunities for peer-to-peer exchange. So this particular long-term care facility has figured something out. They can share it with the ones down the road. Also expert coaching and really meeting organizations where they're at and trying to support everybody to uh, climb this mountain. One of the things that was pointed out by the Auditor General was communication. And obviously, I think we've realized in so many different areas of our lives just where communication sat. It's so easy to communicate, and yet are we doing as good a job of communicating things as we are? It sounds like you went and got everybody who was involved, put them in a place, and talked about, well, communication and everything after that. That's fantastic. Indeed, it was a virtual place because it had to be, but it was absolutely a place. And that led us, and you're absolutely right, there's three core principles that they identified, and you're absolutely right that a lot of them center on communication. So the first one was really about differentiating between general visitors, you know, your friendly neighbor who might have come in, and an essential care partner. And best practices around things like, you know, how do you identify them? How do you make sure that 
the care professionals know who essential care partners are and their role. And the second is really to recognize that value of essential care partners so that everybody involved has an agreement in terms of, okay, how are we going to work together? How are we going to make this work in a safe way? And last but not least, to ensure that residents and essential care partners have a voice in the development of policies that affect them, particularly those in this case related to visitors and essential care partners. When we look at implementing this, obviously this this has been created. What has to happen to get this moving forward? Mm-hmm. Well, the great thing is we've got examples of each of these moving forward. So the opportunity now is to spread and scale some of those best practices and adapt them to local circumstances. Because we know that, you know, in a community that has a big outbreak, you're going to need to do some things differently than in a community where you don't. So that's really what this is about. It's about saying, okay, we've got these best practices. Here's some very practical tools. Here's how, for instance, um, one set of care organizations have created nameplates for essential care partners so that everybody in the hospital knows they're not a general visitor, knows what their role is. Here's how another set of organizations have developed ways of creating agreements between residents, essential care partners, and the other members of the care team to say, here's your role, here's our role, here's how we're going to make this work. Here's you know, a set of protocols around infection protection and control. How do we support with PPE, with training, with vaccination to make sure we've got those tools in place? So fundamentally, that's what this program is about, is identifying what works and making sure everybody has access to that information so that they can choose the options that they need in their local circumstances. Could this have a tie-in with government to help move it along? Uh, We welcome everyone at the table. So we actually had policymakers as part of our grand virtual shinding too, uh, to make sure that we were taking into account what those policies were. And actually, we've got a a guide for essential care partners that was developed by essential care partners in long-term care that includes the updated government rules in each jurisdiction. So you don't have to go fishing for them. You can get them all in one place. We are talking right now with Jennifer Zelmer, President and CEO of Healthcare Excellence Canada. Jennifer, I I got a question that has come in from a listener. I, I don't know whether you'll have the particular statistics. Do you mind if I ask? And if you don't have the stats, just let us know. By all means. All right. The question deals with death rates in long-term care. And the question asks essentially um, whether COVID death rates and suicide death rates have been measured and, and which one may have come in higher. Do we know? Yeah. COVID death rates certainly have been measured. So in the early days of the pandemic in the first wave, for instance, eight in 10 COVID-related deaths were in long-term care. Um, I'm not aware that there's been a comparison, though, in terms of suicide rates. Okay. Really appreciate you answering that question. Jennifer, really appreciate all of your time and bringing together a solution. We love it when people who do the jobs are involved in helping to create the solutions. That's what it's all about, and you have done that beautifully. So thank you for that. Thank you for the time, and I hope this program makes a difference as we move forward. Thank you so much. That's Jennifer Zelmer, President and CEO of Healthcare Excellence Canada. The world of education is always changing. You're always looking for new ways to reach students, to inspire learning. It's one of those things that if it stopped, well, we'd be in a lot of trouble. 
in so many parts of our society. So you're always looking for new ways to do things. Well, this past year, we've probably had more new ways of doing things than we ever thought we could ever jam into a 365-plus day period. But that doesn't mean that the new ways are stopping anytime soon. Because as we look back to a meeting last night and a discussion last night at the Thames Valley District School Board, they are looking at, okay, how do we handle things going forward? So let's get you some insight right now. We're joined by the Director of Education with the Thames Valley District School Board, Mark Fisher. Mark, how are you today? Good, Mike. How are you? You know what? I'm I'm all right. Uh, we're we're still putting one foot in front of the other and uh, and trying to do what we're supposed to do. Let's look at where things sit right now. For anybody who maybe doesn't have kids in school or grandkids in school, describe what school is like as we head toward May of 2021. So as of today, every single student, all 80,000 students in the Thames Valley District School Board, are learning remotely. Uh, on various digital platforms, be that Google or Brightspace, and they are having live-time interaction with their classmates and their teachers, and then they're given assignments. They go away and work on those assignments, and uh, everything is happening currently in the virtual world. And if we're to picture what a virtual classroom looks like, for anyone who hasn't seen one, is there a, a way to do it? If we picture a computer screen, what would be on it? Well, I may date myself with this reference, but it looks a little bit like the start of the Brady Bunch show. Everyone, every, everyone's in a square, and we're, uh, we're moving back and forth. And, and then we have chats going up and down the side. We have screens being shared. We have opportunities for individuals to take over. It's, it's very slick, and uh, our teachers have really come a long way in the last year in terms of their proficiency in offering learning uh, remotely. You'll be able to do a here's a story and write an entire book, I'm sure, when this is all over and done with. Mark Fisher joining us, Director of Education with the Thames Valley District School Board. Mark, you had a conversation at a meeting last night that maybe centered on or involved learning models going forward. What can you tell us about that? So starting tomorrow, Mike, we're asking all parents to make a decision on which learning model they want for their children in uh, September of 2021. We really want parents to take some time to weigh their options and think carefully what's best for their children. So starting tomorrow, we'll be sending out emails, we'll be making contact, and we'll be providing uh, information so the parents can make an informed choice, and they have till May 13th to decide, do you want to send your kids back to -to face-to-face learning, which frankly, in my opinion, is the preferred model for the majority of our students. Or are there other uh, factors, uh, whether it's physical well-being, emotional well-being, that your preference would be to have students learn remotely? Uh, But the the big thing is we have to have more stability in the system next year, so we can't be having kids moving back and forth. It's not good for students. It's not good for teachers. So we're going to be asking parents to take a look at the, the information and make a decision about their model choice for next year. And the hope seems to be that that decision sticks. The hope is that that decision sticks. We know that in order for learning to work optimally, students have to have positive relationships with their peers, and they need to have good, strong relationships with their teachers. And that's really difficult if their peers are changing all the time and if their teachers are changing all the time. So we've done the best we can this year in in a, a situation that's highly variable with a lot of flux. We've taken the lessons we've learned, and we're trying to apply those so that we continue to be better for our community. 
Mark Fisher joining us, Director of Education with the Thames Valley District School Board. Mark, does that mean we could see online virtual learning throughout the entire calendar year of next year if parents or caregivers chose that for a student? That's exactly correct, Mike. And so this year we kind of ran these virtual schools that were independent from our bricks and mortar school. Next year what we're going to do is we're going to connect or attach that those digital learning platforms to uh, bricks and mortar schools. So uh, some schools will have a percentage of their kids attend uh, face-to-face and a percentage of their kids uh, attend remotely. And that will happen for the entire school year. And that option is available for students from kindergarten to grade 12. How much of this has to do with uncertainty still remaining in the pandemic situation that we're in? A lot of it has to to do with uncertainty. So what we're really trying to do is thread the needle uh, by uh, balancing two really competing factors. We want to give parents choice, but we also want to make sure that we have a system that is stable and that learning environments work for all kids, be that in remote learning or in face-to-face learning. And as you said, the the conditions outside of the school buildings are so variable uh, that we just really need to put a model forward that we think is the best we can do given the information that we have today. And how will parents be able to see what they're going to see? The document, I think it's called Getting Ready for September 2021? Yeah, it's going to be ready uh, starting tomorrow. Uh, they can, the parents will receive emails. They can also go onto our website. Uh, if that doesn't work for you, reach out, call your school principal. Uh, we're going to make every effort possible to give you the information. I'm committed to making sure that parents make informed choices. We're talking with Mark Fisher, Director of Education with the Thames Valley District School Board. Mark, how about this year and the way that it could play out? Are there any factors that could be in play or any situation that could arise that you foresee could bring about a decision on whether to send kids back to school this calendar year? Well, again, a lot of that, Mike, has to do with uh, the rates of COVID in the broader society. So we will be prepared should we get that permission to go back to -to face-to-face. But frankly, I think our broader community needs to recognize that it's highly likely that we will continue uh, remote learning for the foreseeable future. I guess we're looking at the fact that the calendar flips to May this weekend and uh, school years still run to the end of June, right? Right. School years run to the end of the June. We've had a couple of times where we've uh, flipped back and forth or we had to pivot. That is destabilizing. Uh, and so right now we're in a, a position where we're comfortable with the remote learning. And really, uh, my preference would be to wait and see and have all of our education workers get vaccinated. And when we are more uh, far down that path, then I would feel much more comfortable about having students return face-to-face. When we look back a year ago and you think about virtual learning and you look at what virtual learning is right now, take us to to that journey and, and kind of how things have evolved. Where do you see us now compared to where we were? Well, it's really, incre- really incredible. I think of last March when we first got news of the pandemic, uh, we had a high percentage of our staff that were not comfortable using digital platforms. In the last year, Mike, we've handed out, we've distributed over 25,000 devices to families and students. 
And we've trained all of our staff on how to use these digital platforms. So we've provided the technology, we've provided the training, and things that seemed almost impossible 14, 15 months ago are uh, happening as I speak right now are happening throughout the, the valley for 80,000 students. Can you foresee virtual learning being an option beyond even next year? Is this something that's now kind of in the toolbox to stay? It's a great question, and I think really one of the things education has to do is continue to evolve to make sure that we are relevant and responsive to the changing needs of our students and the broader society. For some students, they are doing really, really well in remote learning. So I think there is a place for remote learning, but it has to be done at the local level with our teachers and our control over how teaching and learning happens. And that's really the key uh, dimension to make it work. Mark, as a final question, there may be parents who are concerned, okay, we've had some back and forth and everybody's done you know, the, the best that they can possibly do. Should parents have any concern that, that students may have missed out on things or fallen behind on things? So we're doing a lot of work into that right now. We're making it a real priority around what we call diagnostic assessment or taking a look at the functional levels of students in reading, writing, and mathematics so that we have a greater understanding about potential learning loss or potential gaps. And then when we have a lot of that information, uh, we're certainly going to try to customize our professional learning and our programming. And one of the things to remember for our broader community is that we have followed from day one this do no harm philosophy to make sure that no student is unfairly disadvantaged because of their unique circumstances due to the pandemic. We will continue to follow that philosophy and we will continue to provide a high quality education for our students and for our staff. Mark, thanks so much for the time and the information today. Stay safe. Yeah, you stay safe. My pleasure, Mike. We'll talk soon. That's Mark Fisher, Director of Education with the Thames Valley District School Board. And that last item that we touched on is going to be key, and and it is being done. That's the important part to know. When an idea becomes something that turns into a post on social media that causes it to take off... Uh, wild things happen, and we have an opportunity to tell that story right now. You may have read about it at globalnews.ca overnight or heard about it today, but just how big the demand has become for what Jason Smith and his son do in turning broken hockey sticks into beautiful Canadian flags. And we had an opportunity to talk with Jason on Tuesday afternoon, yesterday afternoon, and discuss how things have been going. Uh, we asked him how wild it's been, whether or not he and Jacob are, are sleeping in the garage yet, working while they sleep. Is it that wild? This has been crazy. Yeah, we got a cot here in the in the corner, and uh, we turned the heat back on just because the weather hasn't been too nice out lately. And uh, yeah, we go in for dinner and, and right back out. No, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. But uh, yeah, we're uh, we have our work cut out for us. That's for sure. Well, let's talk about what you are doing. For anybody who doesn't know the story, tell us what began and what has now taken off. Well, yeah, a little backstory. About four or five years ago, um, we started making just Canada flags in the garage. My wife wanted one uh, for Canada Day, and I said, well, hang on, let me see what I can come up with, and and threw one together, and uh, it's kind of morphed into what we're talking about today. Uh, 
I had a few hockey sticks kicking around, so I thought, you know what, let's let's try a different design. And uh, again, for the last three or four years, I've been making them just for families and friends. Um, you know, that's about it. Somebody knows I'm making them. They say, hey, we can can we get one? I said, absolutely. And and you know, maybe making thirty flags in the in the course of the last three or four years. Um, fast forward to a week ago, <laughs> a friend of mine from public school. I haven't seen this person in forty plus years called me out of the blue and said hey we'd be interested in getting one of your flags and i said that would be great love to make you one we have no sticks covid's kind of covid's kind of shut things down uh with my hockey uh stick supply just going around to the arenas and, and wherever else but nobody's playing hockey nobody's doing anything so i have none she says well let me let me put a post on my social media and see where it goes so hey sure that'd be great thanks a lot uh and she did and it's just gone from there <laughs> so now did that then all of a sudden have people contacting you and saying sticks you need sticks man yeah you see my garage I, i'll get you some sticks is that kind of what that, happened I, absolutely um the phone started or again through the social media um it started blowing up uh you know the, it's, it's a common story you know collecting all these sticks gonna do something with them for for years <laughs> they're collecting dust and it's about time i get rid of them <laughs> so <laughs> saw what you guys were doing and, and and want to donate and the response has been unbelievable i i can't even put words to it uh you know having three hockey sticks in the garage last week too i'm looking at a pile of these are just the sticks that have brought to my house uh probably close to a thousand um i know there's certain areas in the city snipe academy is accepting drop-offs and I just got a picture uh, of their side of their building from yesterday, and I, I couldn't even tell you how many are sitting there. <laughs> and that's just that's just local. Um, there's responses from Toronto, from Ottawa, uh, Canada wide, Calgary. It's just been everybody wants us to get a stick, so. It's a great problem to have. <laughs> no doubt. We're talking with Jason Smith. Jason and his son Jacob have been making Canadian flags out of sticks. And as Jason says, no hockey being played. Nobody's snapping sticks at practice or in games. And so the supply of them hasn't been there. Well, now the supply is back. Take us back to talking with the person you hadn't heard from from public school. Uh, are you keeping in touch still? <laughs> did it rekindle a friendship? Yeah, I've uh, I talked to her and said, "What did you do?" <laughs> you know, and you know, of course, she's laughed and all that. And I said, "It just again it was a simple post, and uh, it's it's taken off, and it's just it's been fantastic." Um, at the end of the day, it's still just a father-son project uh you know that we get to spend time together uh but we're going to be spending a lot more time together <laughs> trying to to fill all these orders because the interest and i'm not kidding um between four or five hundred people have requested a flag That's um crazy. so yeah so we're not exactly sure how to tackle that uh again because i've made you know 30 or 40 of these and that's about it so <laughs> how long does it take oh. to put one together Hour wide straight out, probably five to six hours, but the process involved takes five or six days. Um, it's not a quick process, and mind you, I haven't streamlined anything just because I've had no need to streamline anything. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's a gluing process and everything else. So again, you take a pallet because that's all the wood I use. It's all recycled. There's there's not a lot um, to these materialized. A little bit of plywood, um, 
that's about the only thing I'm buying. Everything else is recycled. So to go from a skid, a pallet, and a hockey stick to a finished flag um, takes a bit. Yeah, yeah, and they are gorgeous. I mean, the, the cut of them is nice, and you also have to kind of put the colors together because you you essentially, thanks to the sticks, can almost have these in in color, in certain colors. And, and that's what I've been doing. Um, the random ones are... They, everybody has their own taste. The random flags, just with the random hockey sticks, uh, look really good. Uh, but then you get the Leaf fans or the Boston fans or, you know, uh, you name it. We can kind of put a stick together. The red and black one, you know, Team Canada or, or Detroit or Chicago. So I've had all these fans of different teams saying, hey, can we get one of this color? Can we get one of that color? And, and uh, absolutely, we'll, we'll do our best. It's just uh, the supply of composite sticks are, are there. It's it's the wooden sticks that are in short supply just because it's not 1985 anymore. And nobody uses wooden sticks. So if anybody's got a lot of wooden sticks kicking around, um, that's an integral part of this whole design. Jason Smith joining us as he outlines what has taken off thanks to a simple Facebook post and people starting to pay attention to creating flags out of hockey sticks and a, a lack of sticks around. Jason, before we go, did this begin as basically a, a way to kind of help out Jake looking toward the future? Absolutely. Um, with special needs and special needs is a, is a, is a, you know, a wide brush. There's, there's many different um, afflictions and all that out there, but with special needs kids, you got to worry about what their future looks like, you know, 20 years after you're long gone. Um, so as a parent of a special needs child, it's, it's, it's concerning. So, you know, the sales of this goes into a uh, fund for him and uh, to cover, you know, whatever costs might be. We won't know what he'll need it for, but uh, it'll be there. Well, Jason, what a remarkable story just to see what will take off. And uh, you and Jake get an opportunity to spend some great father-son time and create some things that are incredibly unique. That's, that's the whole thing about this. This is like snowflakes. No two of these are the same. <laughs> And that that that's that is the neat part about it. No two are alike, as I say. We put each one together, and uh, our, our own artistic flair, if you want to call it that. Jason, before we go, one of the things that you've had to do in the last little while is uh, is actually dig into what we would even call uh, famous sticks. Where did the fame in these sticks come from? Well, there was a uh, connection, a uh, local connection, with the uh, Montreal Canadiens. And uh, just so happened as be there was a dozen or so uh, game sticks from Montreal showed up. Uh, so here I am sitting with a dozen game sticks uh, <laughs> from the Canadians, and uh, we're running a saw through them, five hundred dollars sticks, and uh, <laughs> the saw cuts through those pretty good. So what we're doing with that, it's going to be a special. Special edition. Jakey's also involved with Sari, which is the ther therapeutic, uh, therapeutic riding out in Medway Road. Um, and they do a number of auctions uh, throughout the year. So this one is going to them uh, for one of their big auctions. And hopefully we can hype that up for a possible Montreal Canadian fan uh, to get. Tremendous stuff. Well, Jason, thanks for allowing us to talk about something that isn't a lot of what we've been talking about lately. This is great. Keep up the great work. Hopefully you can get some rest. Hopefully Jake can get some rest as well somewhere in amongst doing all of this. And uh, we'll hopefully talk soon. 
Sounds good. Thanks so much. Smith, hockey stick flags. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 